Welcome to the Mission City Church Podcast. My name is Jake Eichert, and I am the Community Groups and Creative Director at Mission City Church, as well as the host of this podcast. Each week, you can find full-length sermons, five-minute sermon breakdowns, and inspiring conversations with guests about discipleship, current events, local outreach, and more. Our mission as a church is to make Jesus known, and we pray that this podcast does just that for you. If it does, please subscribe and share. But for now, please enjoy this episode of the Mission City Church Podcast. Awesome. I'm Jared, as Russell mentioned. Uh, it's a great to be with you today. I was trying to think of an analogy, what it's like to be the guy that preaches the last Sunday um, at, the n- at the movie theater. And it's, uh, I was thinking, you know, inadequate, um, but thankful for the opportunity. So the best I could do was like a fantasy football analogy and David Mills, the quarterback for the Texans, just really an inadequate quarterback, but he's thankful every Sunday that he gets to play. So that's, that's the best I could do. <laughs> if you're a Texas fan, I'm sorry. <laughs> what have you been doing here, honestly? Um, <laughs> kidding. So, um, question for you, and this is a dialogue, so you feel free to answer. Um, what would you say is the, I'm going to, this is going to take a while to figure out. There we go. Okay. Um, what would you say is the biggest tourist attraction for Kansas City, other than like the Chiefs or the Royals? What would you say is like the, um, the biggest tourist attraction? What was that? Plaza Lights at Christmas. Oh, that's a good one. I didn't even think of that. Anybody else? Union Station. Union Station. That's what I was hoping for. Thank you. Was that you, Brittany? Or no? Okay, whoever. Thank you, Melissa. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, I, that's what I was thinking too. The Union Station. And so, like anything, uh, like my upbringing with my mom. I love my mom to death. We had a series from like third to fifth grade in my life where we just went ham on vacations. We we, we did. Uh, Disney World, New York, Boston, Myrtle Beach, all within the span of about three years. And uh, that's, uh, to me, that's insane. Um, but anyway, when we do vacations, we do the most tourist attraction things ever. Like when we do New York, we do, of course, the, the Empire State Building, Statue of Liberty, Times Square. We try to get on GMA and see Robin Roberts and do that thing. And so like ingrained in me, part of my identity is like anytime I go to a city, I desperately want to be like the cool guy that, you know, finds the local beer garden, has an IPA, but it's deep inside of me that I'm a very much a tourist attraction type of traveler. And, um, and as I think Melissa said about the Union Station being the tourist, the number one tourist, long way to just to get to the, long story just to get here. Um, Union Station, every, uh, every year or so they do uh, a thing, they have like an exhibit where they'll bring in, like they've had, right now they have King Tut, or they'll, they did like the football hall of fame. They have these new exhibits every year. And a few years ago, they did one on Vincent Van Gogh. Did anybody actually go to that one? Vincent Van Gogh artist? No? Anybody see that one? Uh, so they had one on Vincent Van Gogh. I didn't go to it either. But when I would drive in the city on I-35, they have a giant billboard of what Vincent Van Gogh's Starry Night painting. Anybody familiar with that one? Yeah, I think we have a picture of it. You can put it up there. Now, I would drive by this, um, this billboard, I'm, and I would think to myself, this is a very overrated painting. Like, a DI- I could do a DIY night, you know, with some friends and do this um, if I had a good YouTube video. Uh, but, uh, and so I would drive by this, and I would, be, and I would just think, I don't understand what the beauty, or what, what's going on here. What's the beauty in this portrait? And so I did a, a, a deep dive. By deep dive, I mean a Wikipedia search into Vincent Van Gogh. And and what I discovered is that Vincent Van Gogh was actually a Christian. Um, he spent some time as a missionary, and 
he he was also very crazy. He struggled from a like a de debilitating mental disorder and had like psychotic episodes. Cut his ear at one point, but um, really had a hard life. But he painted this in an insane asylum. Uh, as he could look out, he could look out the window. He could see the town, and if you notice, you can see different houses, right? And the the houses have have light. What he would call divine um, eternal love. He would use yellow to for God's divine eternal love, and he would put those in the houses. But if you actually look at the church here, um, it's empty, right? You guys see that? And Van Gogh was deeply frustrated with what he would call like the institution, the institutionalized church. Like the church had become essentially a corporation, and he got frustrated. He said people weren't living like they ought to be living. There was no, there was no community of, of, of God's love. But he, he would notice that inside the homes, that's where people were experiencing God's love. And so uh, a guy named, I can't remember his first name, but his, his um, last name's Foster. He did this next painting that I have up here. And it's a rendition of The Starry Night. But he did this, and, um, and I think it kind of just speaks volumes to our church today. He, I don't know, I, he, I think he has King Kong with the McDonald's sign on top of the church. And then he has uh, maybe like a Whataburger or something over here on the side. Um, and what this artist is getting at is he's become, he's getting at the church has become a commodity. It's become a product. It's become commercialized in a way. And, uh, and, I, and I, I think this speaks volumes to about kind of our, our cultural climate today. And uh, I don't know about you, do you isn't that interesting? I just find it super interesting. Now, I get like King Kong's on top of the, the church. Um, I don't think it's a knock on churches who do like sermon series about movies. Um, I've done that, so this is <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to rail against that. I, I just I think it's interesting. But if you notice, the church has light in the church, okay? But it's actually a, a different light than the divine eternal love that Van Gogh would use. It's more of like a translucent, um, commercialized light. And what he's getting at is essentially the consumerism product of the church. Now, I say that all that to say, to get to this very point here, is that we've moved into what's called Charles Taylor, um, a famous philosopher, has called the, um, the secularized age. And Charles Taylor went from, he did like a, he wrote a 900-page book, started with like the 1500s to the present day, and trying to figure out what happened with society where everybody believed in a supernatural power, whether it was God or something else, where everybody to believe to now nobody like is even thinking about the transcendent, about the supernatural. Like nobody's even looking up, thinking, asking these deep eternal questions about life. They're all fixated on what he calls the imminent frame. And the imminent frame is just this idea that I'm focused on the thing inside the picture. I'm focused on myself and the things that I can see. Anything outside the frame, I don't even look up and pay attention to. Okay, and he gives us four marks of what's called a secular society. And these aren't deeply profound, but I, I think I have them on a slide. Uh, go, go to the next one. Right. Uh, okay, I can't see that. I'll have to use my notes. Give me a second. All right, so the first mark is a contestab contestability of beliefs. So it's this idea that your neighbor down the, down the block believes something different than you. And that's not super profound. You guys, I'm sure, have experienced that in your life. It's contestability of beliefs. The second mark is the emergence of the imminent frame. This is what, what I just talked about. This is everybody lives inside this frame, and they focus on themselves, and they focus on the world around them. Um, it blocks out transcendence, and he says this results in consumerism. 
the third mark, in the imminent frame, people are seeking to fulfill life inside the frame. So I'm going to do what's right for me and, what I, and what's best for my interest. Okay? And then the last one, you doubt everything. And I put up here, uh, long live WikiLeaks. Um, <laughs> but that's our culture. And like maybe, and this is really our culture, I would say the millennials and younger, um, like they just doubt everything. They want to deconstruct everything. They want to tear down the institution. They want to just rip apart anything that is not true. But the thing is, when you live in the imminent frame, everything has flaws. So everything can be deconstructed. Everything has doubt. But if you don't let the transcendent speak truth into the frame, then you'll, you'll just be, you'll be restless. You'll be a restless soul. That's what Charles Taylor gets at. Now his conclusion, and this is all of that, what, everything I just did there, is just to get to this very point here. All right. I think I have the quote up there. This is what Charles Taylor said. What has changed is not so much our beliefs as such, but our conditions of belief. The things we think before we started thinking. Modern life is captured by what is called an imminent frame. Transcendent has, has not been reasoned out so much as it's been framed out of modern existence. Essentially what he's getting at is everything can be explained. That we no longer, our faith no longer is a supernatural faith or an, a faith of a higher power. But faith has now become what I can define, what I can see. It's become the scientific method, what I can explain. And so I say all that because that's the waters that we swim in. That is what it means to be in a secular society. Hopefully that helps. I had to take a seminary class on this. It's kind of why I wanted to talk about it because what's the point of paying for this class if I don't tell people about it? So um, anyway, so but I do think all that to say, I do think Genesis, Genesis 18 gives us kind of a strategy how to live during this time. And that strategy is our identity as a priest. So what we're going to see in Genesis 18 is uh, Abraham, who he just made the covenant again, he's going to take on his full identity as a, as a priest of God. That a priest is somebody who goes uh, to God on behalf of the people and from God on in the opposite, to God on behalf of the people and from God to the people. He's the in-between. He's the intercessor, okay? Now, we are called to be that. If you look at the New Testament, the theme comes all the way through the Bible. We're called to be a priest, um, a kingdom of priests is what I think what First uh, Peter says. Now, um, what, how do we do that? How do we do that in a world that doesn't even look up, who doesn't ask the deep, they're not even asking the questions about eternity, about eternal life. They're just so content on being, finding fulfillment, and they're now in their little bitty box that they live in. Okay, and I think, uh, yeah, and I think Abraham's going to give us the answer to that. Now, um, let's pray real quick, and then we'll dive into the text. Lord, thank you for these people, and thank you um, for your word. And Lord, I pray that I just speak with clarity um, about your word and confidence, and know that your word is good, and um, just take out what I don't need to say and use what's, um, what's good for these people and give us hope during today's time. Let me pray. Amen. Okay, so right away in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham is sitting at outside of his tent and he encounters God. Verse the verse first says, God, the Lord Yahweh appears to him. All right, and you're like, okay, that makes sense. There's a divine, the transcendent has broken into the imminent frame. There's a divine interaction, right? Now, what gets weird is in the second verse, uh, three men appear to Abraham. And you're like, wait, what's going on here? Right? That should be the question you should be asking. Now, um, a helpful way to understand this is when you think about Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3. When God intervenes, he's going to come in a way that we can understand, okay? It would be like a missionary going to China, or let's do Myanmar, 
because uh, I've actually been there. Um, a, a missionary goes to Myanmar. He's got to learn the language. He's got to speak Burmese, and he's got to learn the culture. All right. In order to communicate with those people, he has to. You have to go in a way that they can understand. So when God breaks in in Abraham's life, He breaks in into the into three men, a physical physical presence, a physical representation of God's presence. Okay. Now I don't think I do think all three of these men are Yahweh or God. Um, they're all representation of God's presence. Okay. What's important about this first part is that Abraham recognizes right away, because if you see, depending on your translation, he, uh, verse 3, he says, my Lord. So it's him recognizing that God has come in and made himself known to Abraham. And God hasn't shown up in this way before. So Abraham's not um, familiar with this, okay? This is a moment where that is something new, right? And so I think that's a lesson that we can learn from Abraham is he, he's aware of the transcendent. He's aware that God is moving in his life. He's aware that God is, wants to do something. And I, we had a, somebody in our group last week, in our community group, share about how they're just praying that the Lord, um, would, they were praying for conversations at, uh, at their work with their coworkers. And uh, amazing, the Lord, um, that, that actually happened. That she was able to have some conversations with some of her what some of her coworkers and what she's doing she's expecting the lord to show up in her life and that's what abraham is doing here and that's the role of a priest we we recognize the divine in the imminent frame okay now um this whole first eight verses it has echoes of eden in it. he's outside of a tent he's on top of the mountain he's under a tree he's about to have dinner with god this all resembles like an eden-like moment where god humanity and god are together and they're walking together and just like Adam they're having a meal together and everything that Abraham does in this moment he says go go get go get some flour they're gonna make 35 pounds of bread okay that's a lot of bread right and so every all those little actions that he does are just very similar to Leviticus too is he's making a sacrifice to God he's taking what is good the choice calf the good calf the tov calf the Hebrew word is tov he takes what is good and he gives it to way gives it away to God all right, and that's what a priest does. They, they sacrifice. They take the good, the blessings they have in their life, and they give it away. I just went no notes for like 10 minutes, so I got to find this real quick. <laughs> All right. Hebrews 13, 15 says this. Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, but do not forget to do good and to share, for which such, sacrifi- such sacrifices God is well pleased. So, okay, sounds good. Abraham's aware of the divine. God shows up. How do we become aware of God in our life? Okay, obviously, like, the, 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 the church answers the Bible, prayer. Yeah, we, yeah, you guys know, are aware of those. But in our culture today, how, what are ways that, some other ways that we can become aware of God? All right, and I, I wrote these down, and if you want to take notes, you can write these down. And I already talked about the first one is the sacrifice. We take the good things that we have in our lives, and we share those with others. We see and experience beauty. Be the second one. I, um, and I'll get to that in a second, sorry. Uh, third is the affirm the longings we have in one another and, uh, and the people around us. So by affirming the longing, like if I'm going on a hike with somebody who's not a, who's not a Christian, and they're experiencing the beauty of God, they're, they're seeing the eternal. They're seeing the beauty that God has for the creation. Like, they're, they're longing for something more. And so how, leverage that in a way, as a priest, leverage that in a way to have a conversation about God's beauty, God's goodness. Okay, that's what a priest does. 
about longing, Augustine says this, their hearts will be restless until they rest in him. And so I think the people we interact with, when we, when we go in a priest-like manner to our friends and our neighbors, we have to recognize they're living in the imminent frame and they're restless. Okay, and our job as a, as a priest, we're helping, helping them find hope, help use those longings that they have and point them to Jesus. And then another way that we bring the transcendent down to the imminent is that we can tell a better story. I have a friend named Scott who uh, I met up in Oregon. And Scott has lived a, a very hard life. His dad um, suffers what, from what's called Huntington's disease. And I don't know if you know about that, but it's essentially, I, th- I think it's a brain, a brain disease where at, at the age of about 25, you just begin to lose all motor abilities. Uh, you forget how to, you lose the ability to talk and your body just begins to degenerate. Now it's also a genetic disease. And so there's a good chance that Scott has this disease. Um, but he, um, he refuses to get tested. He refuse, refuses to do the genetic test for it. You have to do a year of counseling in order to even get the test for it uh, to find out if you have the disease. And he just refuses, he kind of just denies it in a way that, um, that it's out there. But I've seen him, every winter he would, he, uh, he would suffer from what, like a seasonal depression. And every winter, because he's about the age of 30, when, he, when he's suffer, suffering from the depression, he'll start questioning whether he has this disease. He lives in complete fear that he might be suffering from this. Um, and he's seen, his, he's seen his dad suffering. He's had a lot of other suffering in his family. And I just think about when I have conversations with Scott, I try to p- tell a better story for him. I try to tell a story that death doesn't have the final word for him. Okay, that he's not, his life isn't, um, that there's hope outside of this for his dad. Uh, specifically, and, uh, and that there will be an eternal place where there's no sin and there's no death, that God hates death so much that he died on the cross for it to get rid of it, to eradicate it from existence. So I think for us, as we live in, a, in the imminent frame, these people that we interact with in this world who has a hard time believing in the supernatural, we have a story that is better than any story that's out there. We have a, we have a solution for death. We offer hope. Okay. All right. Now, so Abraham recognizes God. They have a meal together. He does the Levitical sacrifices. Awesome. Okay, then we get this side story to Sarah. And Sarah has been, um, here, well, I just want to read this as a reminder. So God says, where is your wife, Sarah, they ask. They're in the tent. And then one of them said, I will surely return to you in about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So Sarah in this moment, she's probably fill, filled with a lot of shame, right? A couple chapters earlier, she, um, she jeopardized the promise gave them, the, promi- the promise that God gave them, the promise that she would have an heir. And she gave up Hagar. She's like, hey, Abraham, I want you to go hook up with Hagar and do that thing. And she jeopardized the whole thing. And so I would imagine in this moment, she has, she's filled with guilt, filled with game, or, uh, shame, filled with, uh, filled with the fact that she's ruined the promise. And so God makes this, reminds her of the promise that he's given to Abraham. He's talking to Abraham, but Sarah overhears it in the tent. And then she laughs to, to herself. She laughs. And this laugh is like a, is a hopeless laugh. It's a hopeless, it's a moment of shame where she's realized, like, that is just, like, man, it's been 25 years. 25 years, and I just don't know if I believe that anymore. In verse 10, 
he says, I'm going to come back next year and you're going to have a son. And then verse 11 tells us, that, hey, that's essentially biologically impossible, that you're, you cannot have a child. And she laughs. She says the words, I am worn out and my Lord is old. So she kind of at this moment says, oh, well, Abraham's old and I'm worn out. And she's worn, worn out is actually the same word that Job uses when he loses his whole family, his whole life, his whole lively stock. It's the same word. It's a, um, it is a awful state of being. It's a disdain for oneself. She sees, her hel- sees herself with self-loathing. Her self-image is terrible. Now, she said, in her words, she blamed Abraham and herself. But look what the, in verse 14 what the Lord says. He rephrases her, her words. And he says, can I really have a baby when I'm this old? So he interprets her thoughts in a deeper way than she even knows. Because so, she was blaming both Abraham and her for the situation. But he even goes deeper. It's like, no, actually, it's impossible because of your situation. It's impossible because you can't have a child. The obstacle to the promise is now Sarah's age. See, Abraham already had a kid in the last couple of chapters, and the point God is trying to make is like, this promise is literally impossible. This is impossible for it to happen. And then what does he do after he says it's impossible? Is anything too possible for the Lord? He doubles down on the promise. He says, yeah, it is impossible, and then, hey, guess what? I'm going to come back in, I'm going to come back in a year, and you're going to have a son. You know, the promise was never actually directly communicated to Sarah. Um, hopefully, I would imagine, like Abraham in the past 25 years, like, let her know the situation. You know, husbands have a hard time communicating with their wives. But I, um, I would like to think that at some point, Abraham made her aware of the situation. Um, yeah. And then God says, uh, she says, oh, I didn't laugh. Sarah says, oh, I didn't laugh after God confronts her. And he says, yes, you did. Yes, you did laugh. The Lord corrects her doubt. Now, one of my favorite theologians, um, his name is Gary Bershears, in verse 15, when, he, when, um, when, it, when God says, yes, you did laugh, he talks about how we can project our view of God onto that passage. Like if you read that angrily, like, yes, you did laugh, or, um, maybe like a stern parent like, or a firm parent, like, sit down, you did laugh. Um, our view of God determines how we read that verse. And he, he suggests that we read it, and I think he's right, with uh, a compassion, the Lord, a God of compassion. Because this God understands what it's like. And from in, a thousand, in a few thousand years, he's going to go through a hopeless night in Gethsemane, and he's going to lose hope. He's going to go through a similar terrible experience. So he, he fully understands Sarah's situation. And so back to being a priest again. I think we have to hold on to the fact that we believe in an impossible God. Like we believe in a God who was born of a virgin. We believe in a God who, um, who came back from, the de- from dying, came back from death. So in our, in our world that is filled with the imminent frame, we have to realize that I mean, our faith, that makes us weird in many ways. Like we believe some odd things. 
when we compare ourselves to the world. And so as a priest, we have to be willing, we have, one, have to accept that, our role as a Christian. Um, and we shouldn't shy away from that. We're people of transcendence. We, we know that God is up there and we worship him. And that looks weird today, but I think our people are actually hoping. They're, I think eternity is knocking on their heart. They're, t- they're trying to break the glass of the frame, and he's trying to, God's trying to make himself known like he does to Abraham. And that's what he does with Sarah. He reminds her that he is a God of the impossible. Right? That was Sarah, Sarah's reality was true, that she couldn't have a child. That's very true, what, what she knew. But God understands her thoughts even more than, more than she does. And he says, and, it, and, that, and that's not going to be the end of her story. So kind of a takeaway from this part. If God, who could come to a hopeless old lady and tell her that she's going to have a baby, can also show up in our life as well. All right, now I want to get to the last half of the chapter. We're almost done. I'm sorry. I'm going long, but we're almost done. The last half of the chapter. So they're having, God's having this intimate meal with, uh, Abraham's having this intimate meal with God. Two of the, two of the three men decide they're going to go down to Sodom. And one of them stays. And it says, Abraham approaches God. And God's standing there. And he's almost inviting Abraham to take up the blessing that he's given him, the calling that God has given him. He's inviting him to intercede on behalf of the nations. He's inviting him to intercede on behalf of Sodom. Okay. And they go in this strange kind of prayer dialogue between God and Abraham. And it's not really, it is prayer, but it's, he's also priesting here. He's going on behalf of Sodom to God. He's the middleman. He's taking his role as a priest. And he says, hey God, all right, there's 50 righteous people here. There's 50 righteous. Do you think you would spare the unrighteous? And God's like, yeah, totally. I would totally do it. There's 50 righteous people down in Sodom. I will not show my justice to them. What about he says, what about, okay, what if there's five less? What, what if there's 45 righteous? Do you think you would do it then? And he's like, yeah, yeah, totally. Totally, I would do it. Verse 20 says, he, the Lord hears the cry of Sodom. And, it's, and our kind of cultural climate today, some of us have a problem with a God who judges. But here's the thing, you can't have a God who shows mercy without a God who judges. We like to try to put them together, but they're actually the um, two different sides of the same coin. For him to show mercy to the people who are crying out in Sodom, he has to judge, right? And so we actually need a God who both judges and shows mercy. And that's why the cross is so beautiful because the judgment of God is now become upon God and he's shown mercy to everybody. And the dialogue continues. Okay, what about if there's 25 people? What if there's 25 righteous people in Sodom? Do you think you would save them? And what's going on is Abraham's like taking this deep exploration into, who, into God's character. How, how much does God love righteousness? How merciful is he? And he keeps going. He's 20, 15. It's like how, how much do you love righteousness over, over um, sorry, how much do you love justice or righteousness? I have an interesting quote that helped me kind of understand this. Gerhard Van Rod, who wrote a Genesis commentary, he said, the reason a lot of us miss what Abraham is doing here is because we live in a Western culture, individualist culture, 
there has ever, we live in the most Western individualist culture there's ever been. We deny corporate responsibility and believe in individual responsibility. Okay, I'm not, we say I'm not responsible for what anyone else has done. That is a very American, but that is not Abraham's view. And he actually uses Joshua chapter 7 to make this point. In Joshua 7, Achan, um, they, there's a military victory. Achan takes some of the spoils and buries them in his tent, which he's not supposed to do that. And he gets judged, him and his family, receive the punishment for uh, Achan's sin. And so it's a very corporate responsibility going on. And that's what's going on in Abraham's passage as well. So Abraham is exploring, okay, if somebody sins and the sins, his family could be responsible for their sin as well, could the opposite work? Could the, the righteous of the few bleed over to the unrighteous many? Could God not so honor righteousness that a small minority righteous would cover the many? And so Abraham's working down 20 10 and he's he's down to 10 people and he's taking this deep exploration of God and God's like yeah I would show mercy I would show mercy to Sodom the worst city in the ancient times the worst city they they're they're, it's just terrible people right and he's like I'll show mercy to them if there's a righteous few I'll show show mercy and at 10 all of a sudden Abraham just stops it's a weird moment verse 33 says he, he packs his bag and he goes home the conversation ends. And we're like, and I, I don't know, I tried to figure out why Abraham stopped. Why didn't he keep going? Some people say he got, he got fearful because he was approaching God in such a way like Job. Like it was becoming so intimate that like in, in, in his face that he just got overwhelmed and he, he backed off. Some say that he realized there wasn't any righteous in Sodom. And that's the point too here that he's interceding on behalf of Sodom, not just his family. He's, he's interceding on behalf of the whole place. See, the priest's heart for everybody. There's nobody off limits for the priest. He has to serve sacrifice on behalf of everybody. So Abraham goes home and he stops at 10. And here's the beautiful thing, guys, is that we don't stop at 10. Would God save the unrighteous if there was just one righteous? There's just one righteous in all of human history. Would he show mercy on the world? That's, the, that's what Abraham's discovering here. And he is. He's that merciful. That if there's just one righteous, he would show mercy to everybody. That's why the cross is so beautiful. Because in that moment, justice and mercy come together. That through God's justice and his mercy, we now have um, life with him. We have that uh, Abraham experience outside the tent. We have, we are the priest. We know God and we go on behalf of God to the people. We have a high priest. And every, everywhere that Abraham failed, Jesus succeeded. Abraham prayed for people who could have hurt him. Jesus prayed for people who killed him. Abraham risked his life in going before God and arguing before the Lord. Jesus gave his life for those he was praying for. Abraham discovered this principle that the righteous few would cover the righteous many and Jesus executed the principle. And so our last point in being a priest is that we're grounded in God and grounded in others. Okay? That is, Abraham explores the nature of God on behalf of Sodom. That's, and that's how we are to be. 
we are deeply known by God and we're deeply known by others. And just like Van Gogh, the divine eternal love of God shows up in our home. So that's why hospitality is so important. It's one of our values because um, God's eternal love shows up in those small mundane relationships that we have with our coworkers, with our neighbors. That's how God's mission moves. That's how he wants to use us as priests. Okay. Um, so that's where I'm going to end today. Um, so our role as a priest is that we are aware of the transcendent, that we have hope um, in the darkest, darkest times. We can tell a better story. And then finally, we are grounded in God and we're grounded in people. So I'm going to pray, um, and then I'm going to let Russell lead communion for us. Lord, um, thank you for thank you for this passage, and thank you for um, just this word, Lord, this, this principle that the righteous few can save the many. Lord, we know that you are the only one that's righteous, and that you show mercy on us by taking judgment upon yourself. Lord, we have intimacy with you, and we can have intimacy with, with others as our priests, as we are priests in this world. Lord, thank you uh, for this church. Thank you for these people. I pray that we'll um, live to know you and make you known. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mission City Church podcast. Mission City Church is a non-denominational church in Mission, Kansas. We meet on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at Cinemark 20 off of Johnson Drive and I-35. And we also have five community groups that meet throughout the Kansas City metro. If you live in the Kansas City area and would like more information, please visit our website at missioncitykc.com. Or you can send me an email at jake at missioncitykc.com.